0: Welcome back. I'm Josh Hammer. We're bringing on Kevin Roberts soon. Kevin's a good friend. He's the president of the Heritage Foundation. He's doing some great work over there at Heritage. But first, guys, wow, what a freaking week! I mean, for many of us who kind of have come of age in the conservative movement, and specifically have come of age in the legal conservative movement, I mean, I've been literally a card-carrying member of the Federal Society. That is the leading organization affiliated with the modern conservative legal movement since I was a first year in law school. This week represents for many of us a culmination of sorts, of years, decades, really, of hard, toiling effort. I'm talking, of course, about these historic rulings from the United States Supreme Court, none more so then the Dobbs abortion case, of course, out of Mississippi, we have discussed that case on this show many times before. In case you've been asleep, Rip Van Winkle style under a, under a rock, the court, of course, on Friday overturned Roe versus Wade and its subsequent decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, thus returning the issue of abortion back to the states, removing it from the constitutional ambit, from the protective ambit that is of the U.S. Constitution. Earlier last week as well there was a massive second amendment case I mean in any other term this case itself would have been the marquee term this is, of course was a was a case of New York state I think we discussed it on this podcast a little bit called New York state rifle versus bruin massive massive majority opinion by justice Clarence Thomas the single greatest living American this is a this is a career defining decision for justice Thomas I wrote that in my column last week and unbelievably it's not even the biggest case that came out last week and it's the first time that the court has ever said that the words "quote unquote" bear arms in the Second Amendment's text, where it says the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, is the first time the court has ever said that the words "bear arms" actually mean what they say, and that you are entitled to carry a firearm at, in some capacity. Obviously, limited the states are allowed to regulate it to some extent, but I, the basic right to carry a firearm outside the home does exist. There have been two other major rulings in in the field of religious liberty, a case out of Maine called Carson versus Macon, a case out of Washington State called Kennedy versus Bremerton School District, that, of course, being the so-called Coach Kennedy case. Both of these were 6-3 rulings, just very favorable rulings for free exercise, for religious liberty in America. So really just an an absolutely historic week. And I have to say, I, I want to say right off the top here, there are a lot of people and individuals who deserve a lot of credit. And, you know, for people like me in particular, who have oftentimes kind of criticized some of these actors from the right, I think it is time for some of us to basically own up and say that while a lot of our criticisms were and have been still valid, these these people deserve credit. I'm talking here, of course, about organizations like the Federal Society, organizations like the Heritage Foundation, where our next guest is the president. Heritage, of course, was also involved with judicial nominations throughout the Trump presidency. Speaking of the Trump presidency, I think, uh, remarkably speaking, Donald Trump himself comes away from this saga looking like the greatest pro-life hero in modern American history. I mean, talk about how God has a sense of humor, right? I mean, Donald, Tr- Donald J. Trump, who does not exactly have... You know, the most glorious track record when it comes to fidelity and marriage and things of that nature. The guy who literally had Playboy magazines in his gilded office there in Trump Tower in in Manhattan. Literally now looks like the greatest pro-life hero ever. I mean, you go back to the 2016 campaign and there's video of him saying, I will nominate pro-life justices who will overturn Roe versus Wade. And my God, I mean, promises made, promises kept. Kudos, obviously, to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell who obviously helped shepherd these judges through, going all the way back, of course, to the remarkable play that he did in 2016 to put a hold on the Merrick Garland nomination. Obviously, credit to the, to the, to the first and foremost to the justices themselves. That would, be, of course, be Justice Sam Alito, who wrote this incredibly courageous decision in the Dobbs case. Justice Thomas, Justice Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Gorsuch. And one other thing that I've been thinking about over the last over the last few days as this has kind of just kind of been seeping through and ruminating in my mind really thanks to the half century of activists who refuse to let this issue go away we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to our predecessors in this movement the folks who are marching out there who are fighting for legal theory moral conviction thank you thank you thank you so on the other side we'll be back with kevin roberts stay with us Welcome back. So as we mentioned earlier, I'm just absolutely thrilled to be joined this week by my friend, Dr. Kevin Roberts. Kevin is the new president of the Heritage Foundation, already making quite some waves over there. So, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us this week. It's a real pleasure.
1: Well, Josh, it really is a pleasure to join you. So thanks not only for having me, but for the great work that you do. I'd say this not merely to be polite, but really to to be heartfelt on behalf of a lot of people in the movement. I'm grateful for the work that you do. So keep doing it.
0: Well, it's really quite mutual, honestly. And let's kind of kick off the conversation on that note. So you recently made a lot of waves, I think, for Heritage's decision to oppose the $40 billion, I would call it a boondoggle, I would call it a boondoggle in kind of unvetted foreign aid uh, going to the Ukrainian conflict, you had a a very firm uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed that did not mince any words as to why you were opposing it. But I think a lot of people kind of viewed this the wrong way. A lot of folks, even on the right, I think National Review, I think, took umbrage at this decision. So why don't you talk us through kind of what led you to do this and why you think the critics, even on the right, were wrong to criticize you?
1: Yeah, thanks. Uh, I mean, criticism's welcome as long as it's constructive. I, 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 and yet I found a lot of the criticism on the right, especially not constructive. In fact, a lot of it was name calling and so on. But, you know, we're not going to respond in kind. We're going to get straight to the point. And the point is that what a lot of the commentary got wrong was that Heritage's opposition to that boondoggle, and it, it was a boondoggle was somehow a sign that heritage was moving from one pole, which you know you and I might call neoconservatism interventionism, to the other extreme, which is isolationism. I want to say as a historian of the movement, to some extent, that both of those strains of thought have Have been present in our movement simultaneously for a while. What Heritage was saying was what met the what met the eye, Josh. Which is that bill was unvetted. There's no question about a grand strategy. There's no question about the one third of the bill, which would be twelve and a half billion dollars, going to social justice programs that every conservative I know is fighting in the United States. All that to say. I think some folks in the media called this the third way for heritage. And, you know, if you want to describe it that way, that's fine. But as the critics came in and started saying some really unthoughtful things, in fact, even some cheap shots, which I just find totally nonsense, I realized, oh, we've touched a nerve. Here's the opportunity, and this is, the, I guess, the point, to rebuild a conservative foreign policy consensus around Reagan's concept of peace through strength, which I think Trump largely got right. That is to say that in a, in a set of circumstances where the United States has a finite amount of resources to spend on anything, and when we've chosen not to spend it on things like securing our southern border, and when there is a time of inflation, how about we start asking some really good questions about being more restrained in our foreign policy. That, I will just say, is a true, consistent, conservative position. And I can tell you that the more people lob bombs at Heritage, the more people on the right who make some really unthoughtful sort of (coughs) absurd claims, the more steeled our resolve is, and we will spend more resources (laughs) on building that new foreign (laughs) policy consensus.
0: Yeah, so the new foreign policy consensus part is absolutely fascinating. And I, I happen to agree with you that I think Trump basically got foreign policy exactly Right I think Michael Anton actually had this pretty long essay for foreign, foreign policy magazine called The Trump Doctrine, where he kind of laid it out. The, the term that gets floated around is uh, that I've heard is Jacksonian. It's kind of kind of our instincts are more restrained, but if you lash out at us, we will lash out. But I, I, I want to step back a little bit here because it's just so interesting, and let's kind of bring it back to a slightly more macro level. I wanted to dive in on the micro. But the Ukrainian incident in the $40 billion boondoggle, I think is just a microcosm of really kind of the revolution that you have brought to Heritage Foundation. I mean, it was really not that long ago. It was January 2022, where I personally had an essay in The New Criterion, where I just obliterated um, a, a former high-ranking Heritage official named Kim Holmes, and some of kind of what I saw as kind of the intellectual sclerosis that was happening at Heritage. And I'm definitely not going to ask you to, to take any shots at any of your forebears or anything, but... What have you been deliberately, conscientiously doing to try to position Heritage as what Heritage should be, as what Heritage properly understanding is, which is a true leader in the conservative movement?
1: Look, thanks for the question. Most of Heritage's history was, was exemplified by very thoughtful research, academic quality analysis, and a desire to affect the, the policymaking world. And like many organizations – I think over some period of time, it's been less than excellent in some of those aspects. And I I say that carefully as the leader of heritage, because I don't mean that in any disrespect to to my current colleagues or people who were there before me. I don't get into that game. But I guess as a historian, Josh, I realize that the best way to honor the heritage of heritage is for us to be at the top of our game, assessing the circumstances around us, which leads me to the second point. And that is, we at Heritage, we at Heritage of all people, given the, the credibility we have, the resources. We have need to recognize what time it is in America and the time that it is in America is that we have a finite amount of time to restore the institutions of this country. I would say, you know, being the kind of grassroots Southern guy, although I am an academic to take back this country. It's been taken from us by people who have seized most of the 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 towers of power. They have seized the nation's capital. And I don't think that Heritage or organizations like it should even exist if we are not focused on the business there. And so I will tell you third point before summing up here, that people at Heritage are very excited about this. It's not like I had to come in and do some sort of purging or that's part of the plan. People recognize, people at Heritage, my colleagues, that the time was now for us to change some of our approach. And to sum up, I guess, our approach is that we are on offense. We're not sitting back waiting for things to come up, come to us. One of the things I've learned over the last decade in public policy is conservatives are better off when we set the narrative. And for Heritage, the narrative that we're setting is that it's not Republican versus Democrat, which is a very swampy game. It is us versus them, elites versus non-elites. Let us be the think tank and the lobby firm of the people inside the enemy lines. And that's that's basically my approach every day.
0: Well, it's extremely well said. I mean, it's really funny to me that you brought up the the phrase of knowing what time it is, because that's been somewhat of a late motif on this podcast. I think we've mentioned that probably with four or four, five, six different guests by now. So in more concrete terms, as far as kind of steering the rudder of what is really America's largest, I mean, by any kind of recognizable sense, of the term conservative think tank. What does knowing what time it is mean, what does that phrase mean, and what does it entail for kind of your day-to-day responsibilities over at Heritage?
1: Most of my answers to that great question, Josh, will be on the external, which I know interests your guests, or your audience, rather. Um, But I will say a couple of internal things about Heritage, because I think that will exemplify what we're up to. But externally, what it means when I say that what time it is in America is that, A, far too much power is in the hands of not just people in D.C., it would almost be okay if the legislative branch in D.C., for example, were willing to be making decisions. But in fact, they have given those, or most of that authority to the executive branch and unelected bureaucrats, worse still, it's not just that the power is centralized in D.C., but it is centralized, is held mostly by unelected bureaucrats. Anthony Fauci personifies that. And the third thing, and and this is where the historian and the academic comes out and certainly the D.C. outsider comes out, I have seen during my 25-year professional career since I finished graduate school in Austin that Liberals have not only become more radical, so much so that they even question what the human person is, but they have completely seized almost every institution of influence and power in the country. And that is very unhealthy for our civil society. Let me put a really fine point on that before kind of getting to the punchline. It would be okay if the mainline liberals that I went to graduate school with were in those positions of power, because their objective, say at a large state university or private university, was the quest for truth. We, we all agreed there was objective truth, there were facts, and that people could disagree, but ultimately people of all political persuasions were going to be given a platform. That's changed in the last 20 years. And it's changed because of the radicalism of the left, and frankly, because conservatives have let it happen. Um, but the, what we have to realize as a people, just to step outside of the academy, is that the result of all of those things is that Americans are less self-governing in 2022 than we ever have been in history. We were more self-governing on the eve of the American Revolution than we are today. I mean, this is an audio-only podcast, but I'm about to jump out of my chair (laughs) thinking about this. So a a couple of internal, so we got to fix that. And a couple of internal things about heritage, and I'll be brief about them in case people are only worried about the external reasons that the, the, the clock is ticking. Inside heritage, that means that we don't, just think that if we publish a white paper, that it's going to change the world. Now, I'm overstating that critique of think tanks, at least as it relates to Heritage, because there aren't people at Heritage who think that white papers change the world. But what we realize, we have to lead with a recognition of sort of the emotional state of the American people, especially after the election of 2020, where they don't want to read a 35-page paper. They want to see action, which means that inside Heritage, we are spending more time and resources at the state level trying to effectively change at the in state legislatures than we ever have. And by the way, I should say, as I finish up this response, Josh, that I'm I'm optimistic. I mean, a little bit of caution, but I'm optimistic that in the 2020s, we at Heritage and we across the movement are, in fact, going to take our country back.
0: I mean, look, when, the, when some of the most formidable institutions on the American right, institutions like Heritage are rising up to the challenge like it clearly has been under your leadership. It's, I, think, I think it's hard not to be optimistic, to be honest with you. But um, I think you very accurately describe this kind of culmination of this century-long, you know, Gramscian march to the institutions that the left at this point has effectively completed. The way that I phrase it is it's, it's really interesting. I mean, you're a historian of the conservative movement. If you go back to like the 1980s, kind of the Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, moral majority days, I think the leading criticism of the left was that they were just moral relativists, right? They didn't know what was life, what was, what was death, what was good, what was bad. If anything, I think it's actually the exact opposite problem today. This kind of woke authoritarianism knows exactly what it believes in. It is not relativistic about anything. They have their vision of the true, the good, and the beautiful. It just happens to be neither true, nor good, nor beautiful. And, you know, I was recently up in New York doing a, a debate for Tikva Fund, and I, this, the resolution that we were debating was resolved, use state power to promote the common good, which is admittedly somewhat of a, of a provocative phrasing. You can probably guess which side of that I came down on. I, I, I I'd be curious if if you would agree with the need to kind of use some sense of power to push back against their dystopian sense of the true, the good, and the beautiful. If you would agree with that kind of phrasing of of that particular debate.
1: I do. I mean I, I want to be really blunt as I begin the answer to answer my question, because I'll I'll offer some nuance, which is not to be evasive, I'm not, uh, that as you've come to know. Yeah, we we have to we, conservatives have to use state power. In fact, one of the things that we've been most guilty of when we've been in power is that we've been afraid to wield the power that we have. I mean, I I saw this during the COVID lockdowns in, in various states, red states, where governors are very tentative. But it reminds me of a conversation I just had with our mutual friend, Ryan Anderson. And and you know if I'm in any kind of school of thought, it's among conservatives, although I try to float among them all, as you know, I'm really persuaded by what Robbie George and Ryan Anderson and many others, including yourself, have written that anytime a law is passed, or a a judicial decision is made that's that's not without value i mean that, that, that is not without some sort of appeal to some code of morality we have to recognize as conservatives that when we are in powers governors judges members of congress state legislators city councilmen members of library boards for that matter that we are making decisions wielding power for the common good and and the nuance that i would offer is i think the devil's in the details right and i think the to sum up here by saying that i'm not trying to shut off debate in fact i I almost overstate that because i think people got accustomed that heritage didn't want to be part of those conversations that's decidedly not the case i want to agree to the principle and then i want to have the conversation even debate among friends friendly debate among friends about what that policy looks like
0: well, hard will hearty amen to that. So let's take it to a quick commercial break. We're here with Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation. Don't go anywhere. Stay with us.
1: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash impact. Thank you.
0: Welcome back. We're joined this week again with Dr. Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation. So, Kevin, let's take that slightly abstract, more philosophic language now and put it into more concrete terms. So, one issue that I think you've really revolutionized Heritage on is the big tech question. And, you know, our mutual friend Kara Frederick, I think, is doing yeoman's work, really. She, she put out this large report back in February, if I have the month, right? It's February or March, really kind of announcing the, the direction that Heritage was going to go on the big tech question. Is that an example? Is that a concrete example of kind of what you think of as trying to kind of use state power to kind of channel a sense of the substantive good? And and, and how do you break that down as a substantive good relates to the problem posed by the big tech oligarchs?
1: Yeah, yeah I do. In fact, that's a, that's a great example. And it's one that I anticipated as I started at Heritage December 1st. And the reason I could anticipate it is that for the previous year at the organization I was leading before, Texas Public Policy Foundation, we were struggling. I was struggling. I'm not casting fingers at, you know, or aspersions on, on my colleagues. I was struggling with what to do with the big tech question. People like you were well ahead of us. And and therefore it gets straight to the point, Josh, which is I arrive at heritage and everyone with the best of intentions, from our more libertarian-minded economists, to our attorneys, to people like Kara who actually worked for Facebook, we're wrestling with this question that as conservatives we feel in our bones. Can we in fact invoke antitrust law? Can we in fact say that the free market can be regulated? Can we in fact say that big tech algorithms ought to be published? Can we in fact say that the CEOs of these private companies, although they're publicly traded, um, should, should have liability? The answer to all of those questions is a resounding yes. And do you know why? Because a conservative mindset is one that places something above all of those things, something above the free market, something above the desire not to regulate, something above the desire to use antitrust sparingly. And it is the common good. And when you think about the truly nefarious things, I try not to get engaged in hyperbole. So when I use the word nefarious, I mean it. I say this as a father of four. The truly nefarious things that those companies, especially Facebook and and its subsidiary Instagram do to teenage girls, we as conservatives ought to have no debate about using those things. It actually goes straight to the heart of what we were talking about in the previous interchange or exchange about the common good in terms of public policy. So, all of that to say that yes, the free market, in fact, does flow from institutions that precede it chronologically in history, namely the family and the civil society that families or a bunch of families set up, just to get a little philosophical. I think what's going to happen to some up here, Josh, with the big tech debate is that a likely Republican majority is going to want to tiptoe around this because the, their political of uh, factions. There's a lot of money being spent by big tech to prevent change from happening. Heritage wants to lead the way in bringing us to a consensus that we've got to deal with this once and for all using state power.
0: So I I, I want to then jump to a different issue where I, I'd be curious how this framing of the common good also pertains to it. So, you know, I'm talking to you right now. You're in Austin, Texas. I used to live in Texas. You, of course, used to be the, the president of TBPF in Texas. So in Texas, immigration is a is a massive, massive issue. And it is also an issue that the Biden administration has just been epically failing on. And I'd be curious how you view legal immigration through the prism of this kind of common good framing. It's kind of, it's kind of low-hanging fruit, so to speak, I think, for conservatives to decry illegal immigration. I mean, every conservative worth his yeah. or her salt for 50 years has done so. But I'd be curious what you think about our current legal immigration levels and H-1B visas and, and really kind of all of that.
1: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge proponent of legal immigration. We have some friends on the right and they're friends who are, w- would have much more uh, much lower limits on the number of people migrating in. And I understand that, but I happen to believe that as a historian, America has been at its best in those couple of eras when our legal immigration system was transparent, was easy to use, was heavily merit-based. And the reason that I emphasize that even though my my faith, of course, tells me, you know, we, we want as many people to be in America as we can, is that you cannot sustain our common good. You can't sustain our rule of law. You can't sustain, in other words, Josh, the very things that make people want to be in America, if in fact we don't have a legal immigration system that is sensible, and sensible, in my to my way of thinking, is heavily merit-based and not being flooded by people wherever they're from. I mean, it's, let's let's face it. It's 2022. As conservatives, we don't have to make the disclaimer that you know somehow we preference one group of people over another because of the color of the skin or their religion. This is America, after all. We love everybody. The point is, we want America to be around in 100 and 300 years, and it will not be if we don't have the opportunity to have the conversation about what a legal immigration system looks like. That's actually other than the obvious human tragedy at the Southern border. That's the biggest tragedy for us as a civil society is that every year we see this focus on illegal immigration rightly, we fail to have the conversation that needs to happen, which gets straight to the heart of what it is to be a constitutional republic. That's why our founders, as you know so well, spent so much time on that and related questions.
0: Yeah, look, the question of assimilation is a big one. I think roughly two-thirds, yeah. like sixty five to seven percent of legal immigration right now, is so-called chain migration, which is mostly family ties, not merit-based. So that would that would entail a sizable shift. Look, I mean it's really interesting. I think for a lot of time, conservatives or Republicans, I really should say, tended to oppose uh, illegal immigration or won lower legal immigration levels on kind of crass, cynical, political grounds they, they thought basically that yep. immigrants would vote Democrat. What's really fascinating is actually we're seeing something closely approximating the opposite now happening. I mean, there was a special election recently in Texas, I think the 34th Congressional District, Maya Flores, the Mexican-born Republican uh, who won a special election there. Obviously, I'm here in Miami, Florida, which is kind of ground zero, I think, for this kind of Hispanic-Latino shift to the GOP. So really interesting trends to to pay some close attention to but uh, you know a lot of this notes that you're sounding in this con- in this conversation Kevin really kind of going back to that initial question about Ukraine and the 40 billion dollar boondoggle you know i think a lot of people basically will just wake up and say when did heritage go populist when did heritage you know w- 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 when did when did heritage like become like this bastion of the so-called new right so i'd be curious for your for how you view the, the, the relationship between conservatism and populism. I just put my card on the table. I don't particularly like the term populism, to be honest with you, but for lack of a better term, I'd be curious how you view the relationship between those two concepts.
1: Yeah, a lot of people are saying that. And, and, I, and I guess my answer to the, the question about is heritage gone populist, and the question about populism generally is kind of one and the same, and and it again leans on the reality that I'm a historian for better and for worse. What people just popularly or commonly call populism has always been part of our movement. And and I think I'm gonna I'm gonna have to give a talk or, or write an essay about this, because as a historian of, of the early republic, I understand that what came to be political conservatism in this country emanated from something that that uh, British historians in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries called country ideology. This concept that people outside centers of power kind of had the greatest civic virtue. And that, be- that actually became conservatism, especially animated, uh, just to harken back to, to Jackson, interestingly. But all of that to say, um, not to play fast and loose with words or be semantic about this um, Populism at Heritage, I would say, has always been there. Because in the 1970s, when when Ed Fulner and Paul Wyrick and Mr. Coors were talking about seizing control of Washington D.C. from leftists, this is a very populist thing to say. And I think maybe people say that more because Heritage's new leader is from the outside. I mean, I am, uh, you know, not just someone who is an adopted Texan, but I grew up in a working class Cajun family in Louisiana. So I am decidedly not. Someone who likes being um, affiliated with centralized power.
0: Right. And you had the perfect background, I think, to lead Heritage for the current moment. And one thing that I and others have been saying for years now, and I have to say I feel very vindicated in the aftermath of you know the Ron DeSantis versus Disney spat and, and in recent events like that, is that the GOP really needs to effectuate a, a, a basically a whole and total divorce from big business. You know, big tech is kind of, big tech is kind of a unique problem because of its gateway to information and its and its role as kind of the hosting of an economic marketplace. But the entire idea of a chamber of commerce oriented Republican Party conservatism at this point. Has to be deader than a doorknob, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it's so dead, the stench is just very foul. (laughs) And uh, and, I mean, really, I mean, I I think about the first time I realized as a much younger conservative that the Chamber of Commerce in my hometown of Lafayette, Louisiana was actually against me. It was about 20 years ago. And it was it was a question about religious liberty. And I'm thinking, this isn't a conservative town, like the most conservative town in a red state that's culturally conservative as well. And the Chamber of Commerce, the big businesses there, they were against us. They were against us at Wyoming Catholic College where we were standing up against the federal government. But some of the Chamber of Commerce types were wanting to be you know, really sweet uh, to quote, unquote, everybody to be tolerant. And so it's wonderful that 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 strain is dead. And anyone who is talking about that strain of thought being alive actually no longer really is a movement conservative witness just to sum up here, the for example, how much money the US Chamber of Commerce spent getting not just Democrats, but really radical leftist Democrats elected in the last cycle, it tells you everything you need to know.
0: And the funny thing is, you always hear about the mythical kind of fiscal conservative but socially liberal voter, right? You always hear this myth of the, of, of the folks who want to lower taxes and kind of, this, a, a, as they would phrase it, kind of a leave-me-alone socialite. But, but if you look on the XYZ axis, it's roughly like 35 to 4% of the population. So should we basically just be comfortable effectively abandoning that quadrant in hopes of kind of cozying up to, such, to some more of the economic, moderate, but socially conservative voters?
1: Yeah, I mean, the short answer to that question is yes. Having said that, I do think that you know our movement is at its best when we when we realize while it may be true those three and a half or four percent of the electorate aren't naturally with us, that we, we we ought not, at least in a political sense, go out of our way to alienate them. Of course, What we ought to do is really, you know, not that you're suggesting that, I just want to be really clear, we ought to get about the business of persuading them. But unlike, say, 10 or 15 years ago, persuading them should not look like you know so many conversations I've sat through at Republican conventions. Oh, let us change our position on this issue so we get these people. That just doesn't work. But the big... Biggest problem I've always had with that is it's not true. And it and it it leads us, it leads us as a movement to not be focused on what is true and good and beautiful. That's actually the wonderful thing about what Governor DeSantis did with Disney, is that it was great politics, as you appreciate it uniquely, but it was also true. And you can always trust the American people to do and know the right thing. Our leaders have been way too condescending to the rest of us. And I think that's why this great recognition outside D.C., I think that's why we're on the cusp of taking even the nation's capital back.
0: Well, I hope so. I mean, we'll find out this fall, of course, but the polls are are currently looking good. So in our our remaining time, I kind of want to geek out a little bit if I can, because you are a historian by background, then I'm certainly a bit of a nerd myself. Kevin, who is your favorite American founder, and why?
1: Man, you're really allowing me to uh, to geek out. Um, Alexander Hamilton. Um, I mean, I, I gravitate to many others. I mean, I, I find each of the founders fascinating. And I sort of use the caveat, you know, Washington, of course, but I'm, I know you want to name a name other than Washington. Hamilton, because he was actually the most accurate in his forward thinking of the founders and understanding what it meant to become a commercial republic. By saying that, I don't mean this this uh, sort of free market worship that some people do invoking Hamilton's name erroneously. But I also find his story his his biography yeah. to be a quintessential American story, and it, in a lot of ways touches on this this immigration thread that we had in our conversation earlier. And I think finally, Josh, perhaps Hamilton is the most timely for us to be reading and rediscovering in the twenty first century, thinking about the the issues around us.
0: That's probably my answer as well. I I, I thought it would be yours, but I wasn't sure, so I just wanted to. to, to... To, to hear you flesh that one out. How about a quick corollary question? The president whose statesmanship most presciently would tell us in our current time where we need to go and how to get through our current morass.
1: Harry Truman. Easy. Oh, wow. 15, I, I, I 15 That is not what
0: I was expecting. So t- tell us why. That's so interesting.
1: A huge, huge Truman fan. Uh, you know, not, not without his flaws like all of us and all of his peers. Um, he couple of things stick out episodes but it speaks to a larger issue the first is he more than FDR and FDR does deserve some some credit for his foreign policy acumen he understood the threat from the Soviet Union and I think that if if Truman were alive today he would understand the threat for example from the CCP um, you know even President Biden gets the threat from the CCP to give him a little bit of credit it's just that his advisors hate when he talks that way Truman would mince no words and I think that's what we need the second thing is Truman Truman understood the emergence of the Cold War before most of his smart elite advisors inside DC did. And there's a certain gut instinct that Truman had that he applied to foreign policy that reminds me greatly of Reagan and of Trump. I would be tempted, by the way, to cite Reagan and Trump as answers to those questions. But I as a historian, want to want to cite someone uh, whose presidency I didn't live through, just to you know have some sense of objectivity.
0: Well, not on the objectivity, but it's just fascinating to hear you cite a, a Democratic president as well, of course. so uh, that, that,
1: yeah, I'm a huge Truman fan. Yeah, huge Truman fan.
0: Yeah, no, look, I mean, I, I, I mean, Andrew Jackson was a Democrat, too. I think he got a lot right as well, obviously. So there's plenty of Democrats worth admiring. But that's a great note to end on. I think we have to wrap it here, Kevin. But thank you so much for joining us this week. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Josh. It was a blast.
0: So that was Kevin Roberts. Kevin, of course, is the president of Heritage Foundation. Like we said at the beginning of the program, Heritage played a major role, of course, in the Trump administration with helping nominate and confirm judges. They were probably right up there with the Federal Society as far as the outside actors outside the Trump administration who played an outsized role there. And I just want to emphasize what I was saying at the beginning of the show. This is a week for unmitigated celebration and congratulations. Now, it is worth emphasizing that from a pro-life perspective, which is what we think on this podcast, of course, as the listeners know, this Dobbs decision does not represent the end goal. It is a necessary precondition for the end goal, but it does not represent the end goal. Just as Abraham Lincoln in 1854, he gave a speech in Peoria, Illinois in 1854, He was speaking, of course, in the lead-up to the Civil War and the antebellum era of slavery run amok. And he famously said that when it comes to that great moral question, the question of slavery in 1854, he famously said that the relevant question, and I'm about to use a word that is properly out of favor these days, but it was his word, he said the relevant question is whether the Negro is or is not a man. That is the relevant question. Not where you live, not popular sovereignty like Stephen Douglas argued against Abraham Lincoln in Illinois in 1858, but whether or not the Negro is or is not a man. We obviously know that black Americans always were and always will be men. In the abortion debate, of course, we know now due to basic human embryology, holding aside anything that you may or may not believe from your religious faiths or lack thereof, we know from basic rudimentary scientific principles biology, embryology, that the unborn child is, in fact, a person. So the only long-term solution, just says the only long-term solution to the slavery question was full abolition, the only long-term solution is abolition. It's just a question of the prudential means that we take to ultimately effectuate that end. I've been saying this for years now. In fact, there are many others out there. My good friend Josh Craddock, John Finnis, the esteemed natural law philosopher, Robbie George, professor at Princeton University, who have argued that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment actually does guarantee a right to life for the unborn child. So that that is the next step here. But Dobbs is just a remarkable, remarkable achievement. It is, by orders of magnitude, the crowning achievement to date of the conservative legal project. Originalism, as a theory, deserves a lot of credit. It was... Ugly getting here. There were perpetual setbacks, obviously. Pro-lifers were let down time and time again, but on Friday the court delivered. Now, this Second Amendment case that we also mentioned, the Bruin case out of New York State, is also a big freaking deal. This is by by far the best Supreme Court term of my lifetime. And you know, it's funny because I've been involved in this movement for a while. Like I said, I still go campus to campus, I still do law school lectures and whatnot. I've kind of come of age as a hardcore judicial pessimist because I feel like all I've known is losing, with some rare exceptions, obviously. And this term almost makes me want to become an optimist. I won't, but I mean, it's hard not to be. This term has just been incredible. This Second Amendment case out of New York, again, what happened was in the, in, in the realm of Second Amendment jurisprudence in 2008, in the case called D.C. versus Heller, it was Justice Anton Scalia's career-defining decision, a remarkable achievement. On a personal note, I actually named my beautiful uh, seven and a half inch barrel Colt single action army revolver. I named it Scalia. I have Scalia laser engraved into the wooden grip of that revolver. I named it after Nino Scalia because he wrote the majority opinion in D.C. versus Heller. This is the first time in the history of the court that the court established an individual right to keep and bear arms. They re they reiterated two years later in a case called McDonald versus Chicago, where they incorporated it, so to speak, against the states, meaning that the states had to recognize that right as well. But for over a decade, the court refused to hear another Second Amendment case. They would they let the lower courts try to concoct and fabricate these doctrines, and they repeatedly just refused to provide guidance. And some liberal leaning lower courts like the Ninth Circuit, which is based out in California, adopted these ridiculous tests. And finally, finally, they have they granted cert here in the the Bruin case and in a really historically grounded, I would even say magisterial decision from Justice Clarence Thomas, they say that. It's not just keep arms, which of course was what was litigated in those two decisions, Heller and McDonald's, but you also have to bear arms. So therefore, these blue states that have an improper, an improperly discretionary legal regime in place that could just deny you a permit if they so choose, that is unconstitutional. So it's, it's a remarkable achievement. The Carson and Kennedy cases, which we are not really gonna have time to discuss on this particular show unfortunately our fantastic victories for free exercise clause for religious liberty in america it's just it's just a remarkable time honestly to be following the latest from the u.s supreme court and you know the the good news is next term there are some more hot button issues on the agenda next term in particular affirmative action is going to be litigated next term there are cases out of harvard and the university of north carolina chapel hill that will be directly challenging the constitutionality of race conscious affirmative action admissions programs next term stay tuned we could get a new career defining opinion from justice clarence thomas i perhaps predict in those cases but until then thank you again for listening i'm josh hammer we'll see you next time